Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection. Many people outside of Waco, Texas do not know the city as home to one of the largest municipal parks in the nation, William Cameron Park. Consisting of 416 acres, the park lies in the heart of the city and runs along the Brazos and Bosque rivers. It also contains hiking and biking trails, fishing spots, and a disc golf course, not to mention the natural scenery. Joining me today is Austin freelance writer Hans Christensen, who will share some of the history of Cameron Park and its upcoming centennial celebration in May 2010. Welcome to the show, Hans. Thanks, Mary. It's always a pleasure to be here. Let's start by visiting about the beginning of Cameron Park, which opened nearly a century ago. That's right. William Cameron Park got its start on May 24, 1910, when Mrs. Flora B. Cameron and her three children donated Proctor Springs and a $5,000 cash gift to the city of Waco. Their intention was for the city to use the land to create and maintain a city park, which would be named in honor of her late husband, William Cameron. The park would be the crown jewel of Waco in the southwestern United States. And as Mrs. Cameron put it, the park was created for the pleasure of the people. And over the next several decades, the Cameron family would continue to donate more land and money to the park. In all of her generosity totaled more than $100,000 in land and gifts. At the same time, the city purchased additional acreage to help increase the overall size of the park. Now, I understand that the original park movement in Waco wasn't focused on creating just one central park. The original idea didn't center around a a central park at all. Um, They actually wanted to place a park in each of the city's five wards. Because of the public interest in a park, a bond issue was brought before the city's voters in February 1910. And one of the bond's biggest champions was a woman by the name of Kate Friend, who would also be an instrumental leader in establishing a playground within Cameron Park. And to reach the city's voters, of which she was not a part, after all, it was 1910, she wrote an editorial in the Waco Times-Herald describing her five reasons for the park movement. First of all, she liked the idea of five smaller parks spread throughout the city instead of one big park. The smaller parks would allow more people to enjoy them and provide easier access for poorer citizens who had limited transportation access. Second, she believed that beautiful parks would draw more people to the city and ultimately bring more customers to local businesses. Third, the parks would serve a moral purpose. Children would have a safe place to go and and play instead of occupying the streets, and workers, instead of frequenting saloons, would also choose to go to the parks with their families once they had finished the workday. Fourth, and I think this is really the most interesting, the parks would provide outdoor open spaces and fresh air needed to, to improve the health of Wakoans who are battling tuberculosis. And finally, the creation of beautiful parks in Waco would lead to the cleaning up of the city, including people's yards and homes. And on February 17, 1910, the voters overwhelmingly passed the $35,000 park bond. Now, Cape Friend was also instrumental with the fundraising experience surrounding the playground equipment with Cameron Park. Yes, she was. You know, after the park's opening and dedication, a good deal of money from the original bond was spent on just needed improvements to the area. But the problem there was that no money was left for installing a playground for the city's children. 
So the women and children decided to take the lead in raising money for the equipment by holding an ice cream cone drive at the local schools. And the First Ward Civic League also joined in the cause. And the fundraising drive was, was of course, led by park activist Kate Friend. And there was... And the efforts were successful enough to raise the, the initial few hundred dollars needed for the equipment, which was probably a lot of money at the time. Sure. But the biggest boost for the playground came in the form of a 1911 Christmas gift from the Cameron family. Acting as Santa Claus, the family gave a $1,000 check to friend for the equipment. Armed with this new f- funding, she raised an additional $300. And in April 1912, the new playground opened up in Cameron Park, much to the delight of children and parents alike. The area surrounding Proctor Springs, the foundation of Cameron Park, has a Native American legend. What's the story behind that legend, Hans? Well, Proctor Springs was a sacred area for the Waco and Indians. In 1772, they established a village near Waco Springs on the west bank of the Brazos River. And they mostly survived on hunting and agriculture. And they refused to fish in the waters of the river. The Wacoans had a special name for the Brazos. They called it the Great Tohamado. They also believed the river had protective powers and was home to a goddess named Woman Having Powers in Water. Drinking the water from the springs and river provided the Wacoans with a sense of security and protection. But the protective powers would not last. In the 1820s, the Cherokees began to move into the area, and by 1830 they too established a village along the east banks of the Brazos. And they wouldn't be the last of the visitors. In 1837, the Wacoans abandoned their village and a contingent of Texas Rangers built an outpost named Fort Fisher in the same spot. Hmm. And over the next several decades, Waco continued to grow and expand as a city. Proctor Springs became a natural outdoor recreational spot for people to gather. For instance, to celebrate their emancipation from slavery, African Americans used the area for their Juneteenth celebration. And in 1896, more than 6,000 Civil War veterans, both Union and Confederate soldiers, used the area for a reunion. And when the park bond passed in 1910, all eyes turned to Proctor Springs as a potential location for one of the parks. I imagine that since there was such an overwhelming positive support by the voters for the park, that once it opened, there must have been an enthusiastic response from the citizens. Absolutely. You know, the park was an instant hit with Waco residents. And even though it was barely developed, people began enjoying the park immediately. Picnicking was a favorite activity of families, and people often had to get to the park early in the morning to stake out their spot for the day on a weekend. And one of the biggest hits was the evening concerts held during the first summer by Professor V. Alessandro and his band. People turned out in huge numbers to hear the music. The newspaper even printed weekly song lists to bring to the show. And, of course, some of the local teenagers tried to interrupt the concerts, but they were quickly stopped by the growing police presence in the park. (laughs) The park really gained widespread recognition at its dedication, and it sounded like nearly the whole city turned out for that celebration. I think the whole city did turn out. Um, Cameron Park was officially dedicated on Friday, May 27, 1910. The mayor issued a proclamation inviting the city's residents to turn out in honor of the Cameron family for the generosity, and he even declared a the day a half holiday, so school children could attend the event with their families. And I don't know if anyone expected the actual turnout. You know, it's estimated that between twelve and 15,000 people turned out that day. Wow. And there was just a really great parade that's starting at the intersection of 12th Street and Austin Avenue with residents decorating their cars, streets, and businesses in the Cameron family colors. Crimson, white, and navy blue. So the master of the ceremonies at the park was Baylor University's Samuel Palmer Brooks. And following the invocation, one of the Cameron granddaughters, Eleanor, 
christened the park by pouring a pitcher of cold, pure water from the springs onto the ground. And in true Southern style, the Baylor band burst into a rousing rendition of Dixie. Isn't there a story about the Texas Cotton Palace in Cameron Park? There is a story about that. You know, in 1910, a movement had begun to rebuild the Texas Cotton Palace, which had burned down years before, after its inaugural year in 1894. And Proctor Springs was one of the proposed sites of a new palace, along with the palace's eventual home at Patchett Park. But the supporters of Proctor Springs championed the site's fresh water, level landscape, and incredible view of the Brazos River. In fact, their slogan advertised, no mud, no dust, no mosquitoes. (laughs) But a massive propaganda war emerged over a two-week period between the sites, and in the end, Proctor Springs lost the bid. Looking back for a minute, Hans, um, let's talk about the park's benefactors, the Cameron family. Who were they, and why did they decide to donate so much land and money? The Cameron family um, lived and worked in the Waco area, and in fact, their gift to Proctor Springs and subsequent gifts to the city set them up to be one of the most philanthropic families in, in Waco. But the park itself was given to honor the family patriarch who had died more than a decade earlier. So the real question is, who was William Cameron? William Cameron was an entrepreneur who found success in a variety of industries, including lumber, grain, flour, wool, and banking. And he was actually a native of Scotland who arrived in New York City in 1852 at the age of 18 with less than $20 in his pocket. But at the time of his death in 1899, he'd built up a commercial empire worth an estimated $3 million. Wow. William was a man who believed strongly in family and God. He endeavored to treat his employees well, and he loved the city of Waco, which would be his home for the last few decades of his life. And his second wife, Flora, also became one of the city's greatest benefactors. She believed strongly in civic improvement, so the gift of the park was a very natural thing for her to do. Hans, tell us about the famous, quote, dance review that took place at Cameron Park. And was it a regular occurrence or just a special event? I think it was a special event. You know, the the first dance review of 1915 was created by sisters Faye and Bird Hoffman to celebrate the park's fifth anniversary. And Alessandro's band, which had played summer concerts in 1910, Mm -hmm. provided the music for the eight dances performed by men, women, and children from Waco. And some of the dances included the Foxtrot, Fireflies, the Zephyr, and a Spanish song called La Gitana. But I think the crowning moment of the performance occurred in, during the dance Narcissus. A large birthday cake was brought onto the stage with five candles burning. The cake opened up and a five-year-old girl named Goldie Lazarus burst out to everyone's surprise. The following year's celebration would be an even grander event featuring 12 dance numbers organized by the Hoffman sisters. Now, the Great Depression changed the United States in the early 1930s, and Waco was certainly not immune to this, the economic woes of the time. So how did this affect Cameron Park? Well, you know, I think it, it caused more people to go out to the park and enjoy it. Um, activity in the park may have actually increased during this time because money was tied for most of the residents in Waco, but the park was always free. Right. So really, it became a hotspot for local children who always managed to make their own fun. You know, some of their activities included finding and repairing abandoned roller skates or just pushing around an old tire. Others built and raced soapbox cars down steep hills. And, of course, the cool waters offered a perfect place to get out of the heat during the summer. And during this time, a miniature zoo was created overlooking Proctor Springs. It was crudely built with chicken wire enclosing the animals. And I'm not sure where the animals came from, but the zoo boasted owls, rabbits, peacocks, birds, swans, and monkeys. And visitors also enjoyed seeing exotic ducks, which resided in a man-made pond. 
And I'm sure in, by today's standards, the zoo would be probably considered exploitive and somewhat lacking in its treatment of animals. But I don't think that was anyone's intent at the time. You know, during the Great Depression, people were just struggling for activities and entertainment to take their minds off their troubles. Certainly. The 1930s saw the creation of the New Deal, which included the Works Progress Administration, better known as the WPA, and the Civilian Conservation Corps. Was Cameron Park a beneficiary of any of these projects? Um, You know, one of the projects um, that benefited from federal funds was the Walls of Lovers Leap. And I'm not sure if it was a WPA or a CCC project, but other New Deal projects in the park included the creation of trails, rock walls, and drainage. Now, I don't know if this was funded by the New Deal or not, but there's an interesting project from 1934 that's worth mentioning, the Kendall Rose Garden. The garden was was named for former park commissioner Ben Kendall and contained an impressive 1,400 rose bushes of 58 different varieties. And it was fed with artesian water pumped from a well over 3,000 feet away. Pattern after the Rose Garden landscaping at the 1933 World's Fair in Chicago, the garden was in full bloom in Cameron Park's 24th anniversary in May of 1934. And during World Wars I and II, many servicemen and women visited Cameron Park from the nearby military bases. Isn't there an interesting story about a particular serviceman who took photos of the park with him to battle? There is a story about that. You know, there was a medic named Ralston Cecil Goober Head, who grew up spending many days in Cameron Park. When he shipped off to North Africa and Europe, he obviously was homesick. So to help take her husband's mind off the atrocities he was facing overseas, his wife, Marie Ellison Head, took photos of Cameron Park on a snowy day. And before she sent the photos to him, she scribbled notes on the back of each photo to remind him of his favorite childhood memories. And apparently he treasured those photos, and they really kept him going until he returned back to Waco after the war. Unfortunate uh, nickname there, though. <laughs> yeah, Uber. I know. I'm not sure where that came from. <laughs> During the first half of the 20th century, Waco was racially segregated. And how did that affect Cameron Park? Well, you know, when Cameron Park was dedicated, it was said to be for the pleasure of the people. But unfortunately, in 1910, that really meant white people. African Americans were barred from the park for the next five decades. And like a lot of segregation at the time, it wasn't always spoken aloud, but it was understood by the city's residents. And at the time, young black children were were warned by their parents to stay away, and older African Americans found other places to congregate in the city. And one story I'd like to share involves a young African American boy and longtime Waco resident named Noah Jackson Jr. During an oral history interview, he spoke about how he would ignore his parents' warning and would periodically ride his bike into the park. His adventures usually ended with him being told to leave by police officers or other white park goers. On one occasion, though, the mood turned violent. Jackson was riding his bike out of the park with his younger sister bouncing on the handlebars. A car drove up behind the duo, and he was struck in the back with a blunt object, which caused the bike to crash. And he never found out the identity of his assailants. Well, that's a terrible situation, and unfortunately, not the only incident of racially motivated violence in the area. Did the racial tensions in the park increase during the Civil Rights era? Well, what's interesting about that is that the racial policies of the park really began to switch in the 1960s. You know, whether it was the Civil Rights Movement or the white flight to the suburbs of Waco, fewer whites were frequenting the park. And after being denied access for more than 50 years, the African-American community began to use the park almost exclusively by the 1960s. And in the 1970s, the Hispanic community of Waco also started frequenting the park. Well, at that time, did any of the anti-Vietnam War sentiment emerge in the park? Well, you know, Cameron Park wasn't able to escape the drama of of the Vietnam War. 
1969, a group of protesters held a work-for-peace work rally outside the park's gates. But on a different occasion, a professor from the University of Texas planned to hold an anti-government rally inside the park. When it was determined that the professor would not change the venue or his plans, former city manager David F. Smith Jr. took matters into his own hands. The day before the rally, Smith sprayed the entire area with skunk juice. And the smell was so bad, the (laughs) professor and his group were forced to abandon the rally. (laughs) With its natural cliffs, it would seem that Cameron Park would be a great place for rock climbing. Isn't there a particular story about a college student who nearly met his demise while trying to climb that? There is a story about that, and thankfully it ended up on a good note. But I'm not quite sure what year it happened, but there was a story from the Waco Tribune Herald that told the experience of a 19-year-old college student named Thomas Jagelski. Apparently he and his three friends decided to climb Emmons Cliff in Cameron Park one day. Everything was going fine until about halfway up a ledge gave way and he found himself literally hanging between a rock and a hard place. He didn't have the footings or handholds to continue up and there was no easy way to go down, save falling on one of the climbing companions below him. And in the end, one of the climbers closest to the ground was able to summon help from the police and the fire department. Once they helped him get back down the ground, he admitted that this was his first time rock climbing. (laughs) And the firefighters encouraged him to rethink his future rock climbing endeavors, and they pointed out if he should decide to climb again, he probably shouldn't wear cowboy boots. Good advice. Isn't there another Native American legend attached to Lover's Leap in Cameron Park? There is, and you know, the legend is is kind of similar to Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Apparently one of the Waco and Indian chiefs had a daughter named Wat. Wawati, who fell in love with a member of the Apache tribe, one of the Wakoans' enemies. Determined to be together, the two young lovers tried to run off together, only to be intercepted by her angry father and brothers. And the tale ends with Wawati kissing her lover before the two of them jumped from a cliff at the east end of the Bosque River and plummeted to their deaths. And I don't know where or when the legend first was told, but apparently it was included in several historical sketches of Waco by a writer named Decca Lamar West. If you owned a car in the 1960s, you may well have been part of the pleasure driving at Cameron Park. Can you tell us about what that would have been like? Absolutely. You know, it's not quite what it sounds like today. Um, Back then, you know, teenagers would take their cars over to Cameron Park so they could run the Seven Sisters, which were actually seven treacherous turns spanning from North Pecan Bottoms to Lover's Leap. The path was really dangerous, and to add to the lunacy... Many of the drivers would actually add motor oil to the road to make it slicker. (laughs) And I'm sure there were more than a few accidents. Um, The Seven Sisters could also be enjoyed on a bicycle, as depicted in the archives by the many African-American children using the park in the 1960s. And one of these children was legendary Baylor football player Walter Abercrombie, who would ride his bike from his house on South A Street near Baylor. It was quite a ride from his house, but it was was worth it once he got to the top of the hill and was ready to go down. Abercrombie and his friends were a little smarter than their automobile counterparts, though. A lookout would be placed at the various blind spots, and if the road was clear, the rider would take off for an incredible downhill ride. Wow. Scary downhill ride. I think so. (laughs) Waco's full of ghost stories, Hanson, and uh, I know that Cameron Park is the site of at least two suspected hauntings. Um, Is the park really haunted? You know, I think there's, there's some debate about that, but there are two two really great ghost stories that keep popping up all around. Um, the first involves the Lindsay Hollow area. Apparently it was named for a cattle thief who was supposedly captured, shot, and buried in a shallow grave in the park. 
and legend tells that the rain flooded the area and caused his body to come out of the ground and now his restless spirit roams the park and the second ghost story involves the witch's castle an area said to reek of the smell of dead bodies visitors have also reported hearing screams gasps and banging noises but there's never quite an agreement on where the actual location is in the park <laughs> by the 1980s cameron park was reportedly in, in decline um, the park had developed a reputation of having a higher crime rate. What happened to change that? You know, I think the city and its residents decided to take the park back again, which was always, you know, the, the intent of the Cameron family. And this movement really began with the 75th anniversary of the park in 1985. City officials began examining ways to revitalize the park, starting with better law enforcement. So they created a park monitoring program of mounted unarmed park rangers. Riding on horseback, they... They had much more mobility through the property than traditional police officers on foot or in a patrol car. They patrolled the park and issued citations for minor infractions. Most importantly, though, they were goodwill ambassadors for park visitors, and I think people started to feel safe again in the park when they saw the rangers. The park also underwent major improvements, including an 18-hole disc golf course and improved and expanded trails. And in 1993, the Cameron Park Zoo opening drew nearly 10,000 people. The excited crowd was eager to see the zoo's 55 species and 125 specimens. In fact, the zoo continues to attract Waco residents and out-of-town visitors alike, and has added several habitats and exhibits, along with expanding to 52 acres in the park. So now the park has once again become a major outdoor attraction for the city of Waco. But today, it is open and enjoyed by all members of the Waco community, regardless of race or heritage. As Cameron Park approaches 100 years of service, what's on the horizon for the next 100 years? Well, in May of 2010, the city will be celebrating Cameron Park's centennial. In fact, the celebration is scheduled to last an entire year, and I'm sure more details will emerge as the event draws closer. But, you know, to sum up William Cameron Park, I'm going to turn to Baylor alumnus and University of Texas graduate student Mark Furman. His upcoming book, For the Pleasure of the People, A Centennial History of William Cameron Park, in Waco, Texas, will be published in spring of 2010 to coincide with the centennial celebration. He writes, In a deeper sense, Cameron Park has served as a microcosm of Waco, exhibiting a century-long cycle of development, decline, and renewal. Cameron Park serves as a refuge from a busy urban landscape, a place where people can reconnect with nature and with one another. Cameron Park provides exciting recreation as well as serenity and relaxation. Cameron Park can be whatever Wacoans want it to be so long as they're willing to preserve and improve it for future generations. And I think that's just a great way to sum up the park. Indeed, a beautiful way. Hans, thank you so much for sharing the history of Cameron Park with us. Thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure to be here. If you would like to learn more about Cameron Park, the Texas Collection on the Baylor campus has the largest collection of Cameron Park-related documents, books, photographs, and more. You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, The Texas Collection at Baylor University.